Habibi Fahodier, this is the African Liberation Media Podcast, and today I'll be your host, Brother Almost here with my esteemed elder, Baba Makaru. And we're in the month of August, or what we like to call Black August, and we touched a little bit on Black August on our last program last week, uh, but today we're going to go into some specific uh, important events in dealing with Black August. Black August. Uh, we're coming up on the Earth Day of our great ancestor, esteemed ancestor, uh, the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey. And we're going to get into a discussion about Brother Garvey in a moment. Uh, and we're also going to deal with uh, the Haitian Revolution and some other various events that took place in the month of August that makes this month uh, so special in regards to African people around the globe. Uh, so, Baba Makaru, um, in your research, uh, in studying one of our greatest leaders, what I, who I would call the greatest leader that black people had in the 20th century, the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey, share some of your thoughts and insight on the importance of Garvey's movement, how it applies to us today, and and what we need to do is, as black people, African people, to take what he left us and continue that legacy. Abibi Fahodie, African family, uh, Brother Amos, our, our esteemed brother in the struggle, Gullah Jack, is... Uh, away from us today he has some important business to attend to and we'll try to carry on in his stead we certainly miss his his voice and his insight uh yes indeed it is it it is uh, you know we're right in the middle of of black august and if we will if we were living uh, 100 years ago and we had consciousness or we were inspired by uh, the thoughts, the philosophies and opinions of the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey, we would, if we could afford to, and we certainly would put forth every effort to be in New York because Garvey's uh, first uh, international uh, Congress of African people started on August the 1st, 1920, and it ran for the entire month. The highlight was a massive program held in Madison Square Garden where 25,000 black people, if you can think about this, 25,000 black people attended this uh, conference, uh, this, uh, this one particular gathering during the conference in Madison Square Garden in 1920. You know, we're not talking about 25,000 people attending a, a, a concert to see some entertainer or, or attending a sporting event. 25,000 black people came to hear uh, this brother speak and along with uh, the other uh, officials of the organization. And of course, they they announced uh, during that that uh, Congress uh, the first, the, the formation of 
what we call the Abibi Fahodie flag. It's also known as the UNIA, the Universal Negro Improvement Association flag. Some people call it the Pan-African flag. Uh, that was introduced on uh, August the 13th, and they also introduced the Universal Declaration of, of uh, Human Rights for Black people, for African people, on that date. So uh, we're taping this on August the 16th, and the program will be published on August the 17th, which is, as Brother almost said, uh, Brother Garvey's uh, Earth Day. Marcus Garvey, like all of our organizations, dynamic individuals, and nations, since the fall of the Songhei Empire in the 16th century, was taken out of his development. His primary enemies, make no mistake about it, were the United States government and the colonial powers, Great Britain and France. And they were assisted at various times by some race traitors. But just to give people a historical perspective, I'm going to go through uh, some of the key events in uh, a timeline of Honorable Garvey's uh, life. Of course, he was born August 17, 1887, uh, as Marcus Mosiah Garvey Jr., St. Anne's Bay, Jamaica, to Marcus, Mo Ga Mar Marcus Mosiah Garvey Sr., who was a uh, mason, a stonemason, and a brick mason, and Sarah Jane Richards, a domestic worker and a farmer. And so uh, he started, actually, at the age of three. His godfather had a printing business, and he actually started at the, at the age of three, if you can imagine that, you know, hanging around the, the printing business. And, you know, of course, he would go on to become a master printer. He... Uh, you know, enrolled in education. He said that as a child, he played, he knew no difference between black and white as a child. He played with white children, black children, you know, little white girls, little white boys. And then as they got older, you know, the parents thought it was, found it necessary to separate them and he began to understand. Uh, he moved to Kingston in uh, 19, Kingston, Jamaica in 1906, where he was employed uh, in a printing shop. Uh, and uh, his his mother passed away at the age of 56 in 1908. In 1909, at a very young age, uh, he began, uh, you know, his uh, publishing uh, business. You know, this is very interesting. He was so young and, uh, and, and started publishing. And between 1910 and 1912, Garvey uh, traveled to uh, Central America uh, countries, uh, post, uh, Costa Rica, Panama. Uh, he edited a newspaper, and uh, he returned to Jamaica in 1912. Uh, in 1912, he moved to uh, London, where he attended Burbeck uh, College. Um, let's see. In uh, 19... Uh, in 1913, he uh, visited uh, France uh, and Spain uh, and some other European uh, countries. And, of, of course, you know, this was uh, during the time when, when the uh, 
the European powers were beginning uh, World World War One, and you know there were some very interesting things. I, I go back and 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 read some things about his, you know what was what was what he was thinking during that time. But I just want to go on through, uh, you know, the timeline. Uh, in 1914, on July the 8th, he he returned uh, to Jamaica, and that's where he met Amy Amy Ashwood. And on July the 20th, 1914, uh, Marcus Mosiah Garvey and Sister Amy Ashwood co-founded the Universal Negro Improvement Association and the African uh, Communities League. Uh, he began to uh, uh, publish once again. He published a, a, a pamphlet. Uh, where he was he was focusing on uh, he said a talk with Afro West Indians, the Negro race and its problem. Of course, on August fourth, uh, Great Britain declared war on Germany. September the eighth, he wrote Booger T. Washington, uh, who had founded uh, the Tuskegee Institute, now Tuskegee University, in 1881, and uh, asked him for his support. Uh, amazingly, Washington, who was probably being bombarded <laughs> with letters because uh, at this time uh, Washington was clearly regarded as the preeminent black leader uh, in the United States. But he he actually responded to Garvey and invited him uh, to come to Tuskegee. Um, but Washington and Garvey made plans to travel to the United States, but Washington actually died in. Um, uh, on November the 14th, 1915. Uh, I read a report that said the cause of Garvey, of uh, Washington's death was extremely high blood pressure. I think, if, if I remember the report correctly, his blood pressure was something like uh, either 240 or 220 over 180 or something like that, just extremely high. And, you know, I don't know why, or, you know, he wasn't being treated or whatever. You know, certainly they had, you know, uh, black doctors there at Tuskegee. Uh, of course, the great George Washington Carver, though not a medical doctor, was an extreme scientist, was working there. So I, we don't know what happened. But I, I just mention this because my experience working, I have seen a lot of people of African descent wind up on dialysis. Their kidneys destroyed. And initially I thought, all these people's kidneys were being destroyed because of uh, diabetes. But what I found out was that most of those people who were uh, in uh, who were on dialysis actually had high blood pressure, which had killed their kidneys because it releases high levels of creatinine. So I mean, that's just something for our people, you know, to take take very very seriously. Um, so 1916, uh, Garvey uh, left Jamaica, and you know he arrived. He arrived in the United States um, in March of 1916. On April 25th, he visited W.E.B. Du Bois, who was the editor of the Crisis and you know one of the leaders of the NAACP. Uh, very interesting that uh, you know that reached out and there was no animosity or anything at this time. Um, he gave his first lecture in the United States at St. Mark's Church Hall in New York. And during, during the course of the lecture, somehow Garvey uh, mis 
uh, took a misstep and fell off the stage. So his first public appearance was a was an actual you know total disaster. The United States entered World War One in uh, in 1917. Uh, Garvey uh, began uh, in May between May and June. He traveled across 38 states on on uh, on speaking tours. Now, this is 1917. This man traveled across 38 states in the United States. The United States only had 48 states at that time, right? This is before Alaska and Hawaii. And so, the point here is that how widely Garvey traveled. I mean, it's so. So he sounds almost like a, a J.A. Rogers or a Renoka Rashidi. I mean, the way he, he traveled extensively. And of course, you know, this was, you know, obviously he was learning so much, you know, because, see, it's one thing to travel, but it's another thing that when you travel, you see things with the consciousness. You know, I know some people who've been to Africa many times and <laughs> they don't come back having seen a lot of things that are very important because the consciousness is not there. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a massive uh, uh, white supremacist violence against black people on July the 2nd in East St. Louis, Illinois, and Garvey spoke out against this, the conspiracy of the East St. Louis riots. He spoke out against that uh, in Harlem. On November the 7th, the Russian Revolution uh, uh, started in uh and, uh, you know, under Lenin, uh, which, you know, is considered uh, one of the most significant moments in history. Um, let's see. Let me go on here. This to, this to me is very important. When we start talking about the forces that lined against Garvey, we have to always keep our focus on our historical enemies. So in 1918, on June the 3rd, the organization that, that uh was the uh, predecessor of the uh, of the FBI? I think it might have been called the Bureau of Investigation, something like that. Um, it said that they learned via a written report that Garvey speaks nightly at outdoor meetings on a Harlem street corner. So here you have surveillance taking place, and you know we've spoken previously about you know the surveillance. Uh, of the Martin of the family of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., how his grandfather and his father, I mean, it just goes to show, you know, the lesson here, and, and, and it's not anything that, that causes us to be fearful. It's just, a, it's just an awareness. It's just an awareness that these people leave nothing to chance. You know, I told people, you know, when the uh, attacks occurred, doing on September 1st uh, or September 11th 9-11-2001 if 20 of us and you know I'm talking about you know from my days in, in, in the black liberation movement at the height of the black liberation movement if 20 of us had tried to go, go somewhere and learn to fly some uh, uh, passenger jets we never would have we would have been pulled out to class we never would have gotten off the ground they would have been suspicious of us from the beginning. And, you know, I just point this out because, you know, we talk about 1918 and he's already already under surveillance. Uh, so, uh, you know, they, they, they started uh, the uh, he and Amy, Amy Ashwood, uh, Amy Ashwood was there. And so they had they had already started the uh, the, the chapter 
of uh, the, the UNIA in the United States, right? Uh, this was in 1917. 13 members uh, joined to form the New York branch. And initially, Garvey didn't plan to be the head of it because his, his, his plans was to, travel, was to go back to Jamaica. Uh, but as things turned out, uh, you know, he wound up getting elected to the head because the organization was formed and then and then it, it began to split almost immediately among among people. And this seems to always be a problem, you know, among us because, you know, everybody wants to be the drum major, as Dr. King would say. And, you know, nobody wants to march in the band. They just want to be the drum major. Um, let's see. The first issue of the Negro World uh, is published in uh uh, 1918 on August August the 17th. Interesting on his birthday in 1918, first issue of the Negro World. Now the Negro World becomes important because it becomes the most widely read black newspaper in the entire world, and it became his organ for disseminating information. Uh, du Bois held his uh, organized his first uh, Pan African Congress, uh, February 19 through 21st in 1919. And this would really be, be the beginning of uh, a conflict between Du Bois and Garvey because Garvey said that Du Bois had blocked his uh, representatives from attending the conference. Uh, du Bois uh, denied that. He said Garvey would have been welcome. And really, if you when you when you read Du Bois, the first article Du Bois wrote about Garvey in uh, 1920 in the crisis, they, there was no animosity. There's some constructive criticism of Garvey's finances, but by and large, uh, he was very praiseworthy of Garvey in 1920. Um, uh, it, the, the, cotton, the Negro world was, like I said, was being sold wherever African people were, you know, in the Caribbean, you know, in, in Europe, in Africa, all across the United States. And uh, particularly in the colonial countries, uh, countries under colonialism, uh, these papers would be confiscated. This is how much fear they had of what was being put in the paper. You know, now our people seem to have uh, an attitude that reading is not important. But our people during this period of time, and this is one thing that contributes, I would say the major thing that contributes to the growth of the Garvey movement, because all these people couldn't hear him speak. But the major thing that people would read his newspaper, The Negro World. And so th th this goes to show you how oriented our people were towards reading. And you got to realize a lot of people who were living during this time had been born during slavery or child of slavery and were not allowed to read. And, you know, people had to go through extreme risk to learn to read during child of slavery. And so reading became something that was very important you know, to our people. And we have lost that. And I think the level of consciousness that we have in our community now, you know, uh, reflects that. Um, on July the 12th, the Bureau of Investigation uh, requests that its New York office forward all information on Garvey to the headquarters in Washington, D.C., and instructs its Chicago division to monitor Garvey and other black radicals. So this was in, uh, in 1919. Now, 1919, of course, is known as the Red Summer because of the, uh, the number of attacks on African communities by various elements of the white uh, supremacy dynamic. Extreme violence was taking place during this time. 
And I think this is also one of the things that contributed to to the growth of the UNIA because Garvey is coming to a, to the United States articulating his message that you know this country means this country for as far as African people are concerned this is always going to be a country where you know we are subject to to the violence of white supremacy where we'll never achieve human rights much less power and it resonated because of the things that people had seen. Like I said, you have people who had been born during chattel slavery. You had people who had who had witnessed the promise of Reconstruction. And you have people who had seen the overthrow of Reconstruction. You have people who have seen the massacres of black people in places like Memphis, Tennessee in 1866 and Colfax, Louisiana in, in 1876. And, uh, you know, in Wilmington, North Carolina in eight, 1898. And uh, in, in various other places, uh, East St. Louis. Uh, so people are, are growing, are coming up, you know, Springfield, uh, Missouri. I mean, uh, the, the massacre of black soldiers in Brownsville, Texas. They were seeing all these kinds of things. You, all, you also had, uh, uh, this was a period of time, you know, where black people were being lynched, right? They were being lynched in large numbers. And uh, according to uh, our esteemed ancestor, Sister Ida Wells Barnett, most black people were lynched for, for economic reasons. Most of these communities were attacked, like Ocoee, Florida, uh, were attacked. You know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, black communities were attacked because of economic development. Same with Wilmington, North Carolina. So Garvey is operating in this period of time. And whereas you had a, a black uh, boule, black bourgeoisie or some type of, you know, black middle class people who were like, oh, you know, you know, we can't overcome uh, all of this that's taking place. The masses of black people said, I agree with Garvey. I agree with Garvey. And that's why they scraped pennies together. Pennies. They would save nickels and dimes in order to be able to buy, uh, to, to, to pay dues to join Garvey's organization and then to buy stock in his enterprises uh, when 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 they started, uh, let me just stop on the timeline right there, brother brother Amos. We're up to uh, to 1919, and, and give you a chance to comment on on some of those things, or you know some things that you've thought about Garvey up, you know up to this period before before I go on with the uh, timeline. Well, definitely uh, the last point that you mentioned uh, was something that I wanted to touch on in regards to the atmosphere and the climate of people that were against Garvey during the time when he was, when he was operating. Uh, one of the first researchers that really identified the membership of these people in an organization called the Boule was Steve Coakley. And he not only identified those members, but he talked about the prominence that they held in business and in media and influence during those times. And they were sort of a buffer class between the black race and what the uh, white race. Mm -hmm. In many cases, they would do things that would sort of keep black people in line so that the continuation of black people existing in this American construct 
could continue to go on. Mm-hmm. And that is something that they feared that Marcus Garvey was going to uproot. And in many cases, a lot of these members of the Boule came from families that were traditionally children of the, who, who, well, excuse me, whose ancestors were children of slave masters. Mm-hmm. So a lot, in a lot of cases, it started off with an ancestor who may have been mulatto, who mm-hmm. post-slavery was given uh, more funds and resources, or even in some cases during slavery, the slave master would provide these funds and resources for their children through the rape of African women. Right. And those families over time passed those resources down and stayed close to those, not necessarily their white family members, um, but they stayed close to that line of uh, a Western or European prototype African person existing or Negro existing in America. Mm-hmm. And so they used those funds and resources to start businesses and they became wealthy and prominent individuals in the black community. And then they created a separation between themselves and other black people who they considered to be lesser than them. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, as you continue down the timeline, you know, we'll, we'll identify some of those people in eventually how they also contributed like you said we keep we keep the attention on uh the enemy but we also have conspirators that that also played a hand or played a role in the the sabotaging of marcus garvey's movement out of the fear that it would uproot the american negro construct and it that it would prohibit or stop black people from working on improving race issues in this country. That was their mm-hmm. biggest fear, especially when it came to Garvey speaking about uh, creating a United States of Africa, so to speak. Exactly. And, you know, and, and, and what has happened, uh, Brother Almos, is as a result of of African people, you know, being taken out of our self-determining development. I, I have to always tell people, I had a chance to uh, uh, speak to uh, the uh, brothers, uh, the Mashari and the warriors, and some of their family members who were present uh, this past Wednesday at the, uh, at the male's place. You know, we had an outdoor uh, Black August event uh, last Wednesday. And uh, brother, my good brother Reggie Singleton wanted me to come and speak about Garvey and uh, Black August. And, you know, I had about a about an hour to, to do that. And, of course, you know, spread information. But one of the things one of the things I always particularly when I'm talking to our younger people is always remind them that African people once walked this planet as free, proud, productive, prosperous and powerful people. OK. And it doesn't matter what we are doing, and, 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 and we have to do things to survive. We have to fight for survival. And, of course, no one is going to sit around. Uh, I mean, you know, we're not going to 
allow people to just trample over us and, and abuse us. But but what has uh, but what has to happen? The struggle, if the struggle doesn't result in African people being returned to a position of being free, proud, productive, prosperous and powerful people. You know, then then it's a struggle that will forever be incomplete. And it's a struggle where you will constantly wind up being in cycles between uh, oppression and reforms. And what Garvey sought to do, uh, you know, without saying it in these in these exact words, but but his objective was to return African people to our position of being free, proud, productive, prosperous and powerful people. And he saw global African unity with a base on the African continent as as the solution to this. Now, one of the things is very interesting that 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 I find very interesting. And and, and, and by the way, uh, I, I, the the people that I spoke to, particularly the young people, they asked a lot of very relevant questions, which means that they were they were tuned in. And of course, uh, when we speak, Brother Almost, we we are teachers, but no teacher is any good if the teacher isn't also a learner. And so I always notice when you speak, you encourage audience participation. You want people to engage with you. You want people to, to ask questions. You want to be challenged. And you, you, even and, you know, I'm the same way, even though you and I, we may not necessarily know all the answers to mm -hmm. questions that people may pose because, you know, conscious people, you know, they, they have ways of coming up with things that 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 that, that you may not know the answer to. But. But it encourages us and it, it challenges us to do even more research to become even better. And so, you know, I just wanted to just shout out to those to the brothers that particularly the young people, uh, you know, Talik and the others who were like, uh, you know, King Jasper and others who were engaged and and uh, asking questions mm -hmm. and explaining what a BB for Hodier meant. I mean, this is. Man, you know that they just do great work there. Uh, but what I was, what I wanted to say is that uh, what was very interesting about uh, one of the Du Bois's proposals at the 1919 uh, Pan African Congress, which was took place in Paris, was that Germany had lost the war, so it obviously no longer had control of its colonies in Africa. So Du Bois wanted to wanted uh, to have the, the, the former German colonies, uh, Namibia, uh, Tanganyika, Cameroon. Uh, there might have been there was one other. Uh, and uh, those colonies, plus Portugal being a weak sister in Europe, the Portuguese colonies and take the Congo from the Belgians and form that block of nations, you know, into a confederacy, uh, you know, that would be, uh, you know, under, uh, you know, African people, you know, with uh, with international support. Now, obviously, the British and the French in particular, because the British and the French and the uh, and the and the European Americans are the greatest enemies of African people. Let's be crystal clear about this. Obviously, they were not going to go for that. But but the reason why I mention that is because you can see Du Bois having like sort of a 
a vision of what Garvey was talking about, you know, which then makes us like scratch our heads and say, you know, why, why couldn't you see what he was doing uh, when he was doing it and just let him be without, you know, the attacks that, that, that would come later. But like I said, initially, the initial articles and everything, everything was positive. He even praised, Du Bois wrote an article uh, about uh, the growing uh, West, uh, what he called the West Indian. This would be Africans from the Caribbean who were immigrating uh, to the United States. Uh, according to uh, Professor Robert Hill, who is, I think, the foremost scholar on Garvey, uh, most of these Africans actually came from Barbados, not ja not Jamaica, which is amazing. But you had Africans coming from all of these countries, you know, Antigua, uh, Dominica, Trinidad, uh, you know, Jamaica. You had Africans coming from all of these uh, all, all of these uh, former British colonies. And uh, but one of the things Du Bois said in the article was that the positive impact that the Africans from the Caribbean were having on the black working class in particular, uh, because, you know, and, and then he even praised said, you know, it was these uh, Afro-Caribbeans who introduced the concept of Africa for the Africans. He didn't mention Garvey's name, but he was praising, praising the idea. But let me go on. Um, let me see, where was I? Okay, so we got, we got Hoover in July. September, the Black Star Line signs a contract to purchase its first ship. Uh, the Yarmouth, later renamed the Frederick Douglass, for $165,000. October the 11th, this is 1919. With the goal of deporting Garvey firmly in mind, J. Edgar Hoover writes a memo suggesting that investigators pursue the idea of prosecuting Garvey for fraud in connection with his Black Star Line activities. Now, the Black Star Line was incorporated in Delaware, even though Garvey lived in New York City. Uh, it was incorporated in Delaware, and a, and a lot of people felt like Delaware was just a playground for anybody who wanted to uh, to have a a, a corporation. I'm not, I'm not blaming Garvey for taking advantage of this, but you can see here in 1919, Hoover is already, uh, you know, talking about deporting Garvey, investigating him and and deporting him. Uh, on August the 14th, Garvey is shot and wounded in an assassination attempt by a Negro by the name of George Tyler. Okay, uh, in 1920, he founded the Negro Factories Corporation, right? I think stock in the Black Star Line, I believe, was $5, and stock in the Negro Factories Corporation, uh, you know, was $1. Um, you know, I think they, they, they made various products. I think the first black baby dolls, for example. Uh, August 1st through the 31st, we already talked about this. The Universal Negro Improvement Association holds its first international convention of the Negro peoples, Negro peoples of the world uh, at Madison Square Garden and schedules a massive parade in Harlem. During this convention, the UNA, UNIA adopts and signs the Declaration of Rights for the Negro peoples of the world, adopts a, a national flag with the colors red, black, and green, and elects, uh, of, uh, and elects officials for its provisional government. Garvey was elected the provisional president of Africa. Okay. Uh, 1921, Garvey got a British passport because he was still a British uh, subject. He would have, he would uh, eventually apply for U.S. citizenship, which would never be granted. And a lot of people say, well, if Garvey wanted to move to Africa, why would he apply for U.S. citizenship? Well, he was in the United States. He realized 
that that uh, that you know he would probably be subject to the laws of the United States, and I think he he felt that if he was a U.S. citizen, he may be more protected. Uh, you know that's doubtful, but anyway, uh, so he traveled uh, back, uh, you know, to Jamaica and to some of the other countries of the Caribbean. And when he and he when he wanted to return to the United States, the U the U.S. Uh, refused to give him a visa, and you know they held him up, you know, in uh, in Jamaica, you know, for for a period of time. Uh, you know, he finally was able to return uh, in uh, July of 1921. Um, Let's see. On January 12th, 1922, Garvey's arrested for fraudulent use of mails and is held on a $2,500 bond pending presentation of his case to a federal jury. Uh, in April, the Black Star Line collapsed due to uh, financial failure, but, but Garvey would, would reorganize another line. Uh, in, in June, on June 25th, 1922, what some people consider to be uh, a disaster uh, political disaster in terms of the optics. Uh, Garvey met with the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, Edward Young Clark, in Atlanta. And this supposedly uh, gave the impetus to Chandler Owen and seven other Negroes to send a letter of complaint against Garvey to Attorney General Harry Daugherty, and the Garvey Must Go campaign, uh, you know, was launched. Okay, uh, so the, the letter was sent actually in January 1923, but they launched the Garvey Must Go campaign uh, in June of 1922. Uh, on May the 18th, his trial began. On June 21st, he was sentenced to five years in prison for mail fraud. And uh, his appeal was denied and he was taken to the Tombs prison uh, in New York. Uh it was also in 1923 that Du Bois launched a vicious attack on Garvey, including an attack on his phenotype. Garvey, of course, responded in kind. And this, to me, is a very tragic moment where, you know, you have the greatest mass leader, mass leader of African people, you know, in the Western Hemisphere, Marcus Mosiah Garvey, and perhaps his most towering intellect in Du Bois, literally in the gutter, uh, as if they are, you know, Little Wayne and Snoop Dogg. <laughs> I mean, just at that level, it's just, it's so tragic. And it really shows how white supremacy impacts even our consciousness that we have to go there, uh, you know, in, in, in the process of, of an ideological disagreement. Uh, let's see. July. This is in 1924. Liberia refuses to grant visas to the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Now, a lot of people blame Du Bois for his activities regarding Liberia. Uh, Liberia, of course, uh, was essentially was was technically independent, but was was actually a, nothing more than a United States colony, which it had been since you know it was founded by the American Colonization Society. But the pressure on Liberia was coming from Great Britain and France because they had a tremendous fear that if Garvey established a beachhead in Liberia, that his ideas would spread to the colonies. And France obviously had the most colonies. They had this big block 
it was called uh, French West Africa. If you ever look at a map of Africa, say in 1920 or 30 or 40, or even 1950, you will see this block that includes, you know, Mali and or Bikini Faso and Senegal. You'll see Cote d'Ivoire. You'll see this block that's known as French West Africa, right? And, of course, the British, you know, had the Gold Coast and, you know, uh, Nigerians, some other colonies. But but they were the main they were the main people. They were the ones who were contacting the U.S. government saying, y'all need to stop this man. We cannot allow him to come to Africa. And, of course, the Firestone Rubber Company wanted to continue the exploitation. Uh, I think Firestone and Goodyear both had rubber plantations in in uh, Liberia. Of course, so these were a lot of the forces that were aligned. Uh, so Garvey uh, eventually got out on appeal and continued his work. Uh, but he was arrested in 1925. On June the 8th, Malcolm X's father, Earl Little, a follower of Garvey, appeals to President Coolidge for Garvey's release. November the 18th, President Coolidge commutes Garvey's sentence. Garvey is released from the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary and taken to uh, New Orleans uh, for de de deportation. He delivers his farewell address uh, from the deck of the ship there, and he left the United States on December the 2nd and uh, never, never returned. Uh, in 1935, he relocated to London, probably a bad, bad uh, in, environmental atmosphere uh, for Garvey to be in uh, from a from a health perspective. Uh, and on, in 1940, he suffered a cerebral hemorrhage. Some people said he had a heart attack. He was paralyzed on his right side and speech was affected. On June the 10th, he died uh, in London. But the fact that we are still talking about Garvey. 20 years after his uh, greatest achievement, 133 years after his birth, and is, is, is a testament to what he meant to African people. So I, I covered a lot of stuff there, uh, Brother Almost. If you want to go, go in on uh, you know, some of the things that, uh, that you know, uh, concern you, uh, uh, things that you think people should be interested in, you know, from this period of time between 1919 and 1940. Right. So uh, a few things that you, t that you touched on, um, I want to kind of expand on those points just to give an understanding um, of what was happening at the time when those events had taken place. Mm -hmm. So going back to the uh, Garvey Must Go campaign that, like you said, the letter was sent. Uh, in 1923 but prior to that there had been attacks on Garvey by people like A. Philip Randolph mm -hmm. uh, who ironically was not included in this letter along with W.E.B. Du Bois but it wasn't because they didn't want to sign the letter it was really because the Boule thought that it would be a better perception if what seemed like non-biased people only mm -hmm. pinned the letter. Right. So this is why on the letter you only have uh, the seven signatures of these uh, prominent quote-unquote Negroes. Mm -hmm. And in the letter they even tried to display their prominence as symbolism for the Attorney General or as motivation for the Attorney General to act in their favor. Uh, these these Negroes were 
Harry Pace, uh, Robert Abbott, John Nell, Julia Coleman, William Pickens, Chandler Owen, Robert Bagnall, and George Harris. So not only did they list their names, but they also listed their either their businesses or the influence that they had. Hmm. So at the top here or at the bottom of the letter here it says that Harry H. Pace is the president of the Pace Phonograph Corporation. Robert S. Abbott is the editor and publisher of the Chicago Defender. So once again, we're talking about media and, and uh, influence. Right. John E. Nell is the president of Nell and Parker Real Estate. Julia P. Coleman is the president of Hair Vim Chemical Company. Mm. William Pickens is the first secretary of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Hmm. Chandler Owen is the co-editor of The Messenger. Right. Now, the other person who was the editor was A. Philip Randolph. Exactly. Uh, Robert Bagnall is the director of branches of National Advancement, excuse me, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And George W. Harris is a member of the Board of Aldermen of New York City and the editor of New York News. Mm. So, in the final paragraph of their demands, they had 20, 29 paragraphs or points that they pointed out in this letter against Marcus Garvey. Right. Uh, in, in, in paragraph 29, it says, we desire the Department of Justice to understand that those who draft this document, as well as the tens of thousands who will endorse it in all parts of the country, are by no means impressed by the widely circulated reports which allege certain colored politicians have been trying to use their influence to get the indictment against Garvey quashed. The signers of this appeal represent no particular political, religious, or nationalistic faction. They have no personal ends or partisan interests to serve, nor are they moved by any personal bias against Marcus Garvey. That's an important sentence because they purposely left off W.E.B. E. Du Bois, A. April and Randolph for that purpose. They sound this tosin only because they foresee the gathering storm of race prejudice and the sense, excuse me, and since the imminent menace of this insidious movement which cancer which is cancer like is gnawing at the very vitals of peace and safety of civic harmony and interracial concord so that shows you that as we know um these people were were never for black people gaining power outside of the white power structure Mm-hmm. They were fundamentally for integration. But in some of the other points here, it talks about some of the things that you mentioned, like Garvey's meeting with uh, the Klan member. Uh, I think I think his name was uh, Edward Clark of, mm-hmm. the, of the Klan. So Garvey, as his as he tried to gain power in the South. He went down to Atlanta and he met with Edward Clark of the KKK. And he he had that meeting because he saw how much power the Klan had in the South. And he knew how difficult it would be to expand the UNIA in the South. So he came to an agreement with the Klan member of, uh, of Atlanta to sell off stocks in some of his businesses. And in that agreement... The Klan member, his requirement, I guess you could say, of Garvey or his ask of Garvey 
was to help to weaken integrationist black organizations like the NAACP because the Klan was not for race mixing and essentially they were for along with the neo-Nazis with George, under George Lincoln Rockwell they were for separation uh, for many of those who don't know George Lincoln, Rock, Rock, George Lincoln Rockwell met with uh, the Nation of Islam mm-hmm. and was even invited to speak on their platform so what this is what you're seeing with these meetings is once you have been in this for a while you start to understand who are the primary orchestrators of a lot of the racial tension between African people and Europeans now we know that the Klan has a physical hand in that racial tension they've killed a lot of black people They've uh, caused a lot of destruction in the black community and a lot of it has been used to create fear among black people. But when we talk about the mental capacity, the mental capacity to craft, orchestrate, and maintain a power structure over a group of people, we often leave out what people would call small hats as being responsible or playing a role in that happening. So Marcus Garvey, he had an agenda that he was using or that he was trying to achieve in strengthening his own organization. It wasn't that he was aligning with the Klan or integrating with the Klan. It's that he was really trying to exploit a situation where he can gain power. And um, when this happened, like you stated, this is really what sparked an outrage amongst Negroes like A. Philip Randolph, W.E.B. Du Bois, and others to use this as a quote-unquote catalyst to point to Garvey as a, uh, as a tool of white supremacy. And not only did they do that, but they also, in this letter to the Attorney General, they attacked the membership numbers of Marcus Garvey, they tried to say that Garvey only had 20,000 members. Now it's been stated in some, by some people that Marcus Garvey had over a million members worldwide, including the diaspora. Uh, but in the letter, they quoted W.E.B. Du Bois as being a statistician and saying that he had done the research which showed that Garvey only had 20,000 members. And they also quoted W.A. Domingo, uh, who was also from Jamaica, as, as saying that Garvey did not have as many members as he as he was uh, was stating. So with that um, event that took place between Garvey and the Klan member. Then these Negroes went on a rampage and really started to push the Garvey must go campaign. And it even came to a point, at one point, A. Philip Randolph received uh, a package in the mail with the severed hand of a white man hmm. that was signed and supposed to be from the KKK. But of course, he attributed it to the UNIA and Marcus Garvey, hmm. I guess as a uh, some type of threat to try to scare him. Um, but... Um, as this took place, 
as you stated, Garvey did want to send delegates to Liberia because he wanted to set that up as a nation state for Africans from the diaspora to go to. And what happened during that time is that at this time, like you talked about Liberia being a, uh, a colony of the United States, they were in debt to the World Bank. And Marcus Garvey offered to give them $1 million towards their debt to the World Bank in exchange for a partnership. Uh, and of course, that would include blacks receiving land. Okay, and then having some type of influence in the country. So Garvey sent his delegates there. They were blocked by Liberia from entering because the Liberian president had been convinced or the Liberian government had been convinced by people like W.E.B. Du Bois that Marcus Garvey was going to try to come into the country and become a dictator. And W.E.B. Du Bois was financed by the U.S. government and sent there on this mission to meet with the Liberian government strictly to sabotage the plans of Marcus Garvey. And once the Marcus Garvey deal with the million dollars fell through because of them banning the UNIA delegates, then Firestone came in and they uh, gave the government $5 million for the land. And then they used that land, like, like you stated, to expand their, their uh, tire company uh, for rubber. So... Um, it's not a secret that the mindset that existed in those times, you know, we look at a lot of the things that go on now and a lot of it is, it's, it's the same thing, just in a different format. Back then they didn't have YouTube. They didn't have social media. So we see a lot of attacks on these different platforms from black people uh, at each other. And then we sometimes say that, you know, these brothers would not have been doing this in those times. They did it just in a different in a different format, under a different platform, under a different structure. Mm. And I'm not saying that that uh, that it shouldn't it should not have been done. Like you said, I think that often cases when that happens, it just plays into the hands of the white power structure because then it causes a division and then it causes a weakening of what would what could have been a very successful movement um, another thing I want to point out is that in many cases the boule oftentimes looked down upon Marcus Garvey's followers they often called them ignorant low-class voteless Negroes and they made that point also in a letter to the attorney general to try to sell themselves as law abiding citizens who are contributing to the betterment of America and the followers of Marcus Garvey as these low class Negroes who uh, need to be disbanded because they can only cause trouble and negativity. So it's very important to note that that separation of class amongst black people, because as I stated earlier, these people still operate 
under that same guys they still operate under that same structure and a lot it, oftentimes they know that white people look at black people as a problem through all of the stereotypes and many of the uh the attitudes and actions that they created on the slave plantation like you mentioned before uh on, on previous programs we talked about tupac shakur you talked about his acronym thug life the hate you give little infants f's everybody mm-hmm. well these europeans created the n-word on the slave plantation right all of the bad attributes that can be attributed to black people are foundationally uh stemming from that experience in the Maafa. Mm-hmm. They created the slave. Right. And and now they have a problem with the slaves and the slave mind that still exists. So they often wanted to point that out to separate themselves and and basically, you know, make whites feel comfortable that you have an alliance with us, the good black people, and this is what we need to do to make sure that we keep the quote-unquote negative, voteless, ignorant black people in line with our plans for improving America for all people. Right, right. Um, you know, I think, see, the thing, I think the thing with the Klan and I just I just think that that gave uh, Chandler Owen and like you say, Chandler Owen was the co-editor or co-owner, co-founder, whatever of the messenger, along with uh, Randolph, a Philip Randolph. I think what I think the meeting. Gave them uh, just addition ammunition to do what they wanted to do anyway. Okay, so, I mean, if you if you consider someone to be an enemy and, you know, that person does something that, you know, a mass of people who uh, are following him is going to raise questions about. It's a perfect propaganda. It, it would be similar to it would be similar now to one of our leaders that we looked upon and respected met with Donald Trump to the masses of people. Because of the way they look at Donald Trump, most people will use that right off the bat as a way to say, you know, this guy has to go because he's a Trump supporter. But a lot of our people don't look deeper into what what may have been taking place at that meeting. Yeah, exactly. And and and, and so so what 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 happens in a situation like that is that. There is I mean, the uh, the group of people were a small group of people. Right. The opponents compared to the numbers of people, you know, that Garvey said were, were in in his organization. Um, and based on the amount of money, you know, he was ra- I mean, twenty five thousand people at one rally. Uh, tens of thousands of people, I think they were saying that the uh, parade, the uh, Garvey parade in Harlem, I mean, they were like, you know, Tens of thousands of people to come out, come out for the parade. Owen and those had 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 no such, no such following, but 
if we look at the historical context, we had the rebirth of the Klan in 1915 in Stone Mountain, Georgia. And, you know, this uh, was it was supposedly inspired by the movie, uh, you know, The Birth of a Nation. And so you had that in 1915 and then you had all of these incidents of of racial violence uh, taking place in northern cities. So mm-hmm. the optics were mm-hmm. very bad. Uh, you know, Malcolm X was sent by uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad to meet with the Klan in Atlanta. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, people make cal- calculations and they think that this is going to enhance, uh, you know, their, their program, but they have to weigh the optics. Mm-hmm. How is this going to look to people? I mean, you know, you're talking about people, people have just come out of the red summer of 1919. Mm-hmm. How's this going to look? You know, two people. And so you have to you have to weigh, you know, what you know, what do you think is going to be most advantageous? I mean, so especially with black people, because oftentimes we're too symbolic. When it comes to optics and emotions and things that we that we perceive as being good for us or feeling good. Exactly. Exactly. And then the other thing, I mean, that to. Uh, you know, for Du Bois to be, uh, you know, allow himself to be a minister, plenipotentiary, and envoy extraordinaire, uh, you know, to Liberia, that certainly, you know, gives people the impression that he was going to thwart any efforts by uh, Garvey. But we have to understand, the main pressure that was being put on Liberia was being put on Liberia by Great Britain and France. We had to be crystal clear about that. Uh, you know, black people become become pawns in these schemes, and that's how it's been. I mean, historically, it's 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 the whites have the plan, mm-hmm. and 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 the Negroes assist in carrying the plan out. Exactly, like your Crispus it, addicts, like 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 uh uh how Hannibal got defeated by the Romans. I mean, you exactly. always have a, a sector of Negro conspirators that sabotage the movement, mm-hmm. like Denmark Vesey and Gullah Jack. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, George Wilson, right? William O'Neill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, so so you know the list goes on and on and then and then of course then you have you know people who do even greater damage, like Joseph Mobutu. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you know, we we have we have this, um, but I, I know we I know we're running short on time, and I, I guess we can we can talk about uh, Haiti, uh, you know, next week, or maybe even during the week if Jack is available. Um, one of the things that that I found interesting, I, I've been listening to a lot of uh, lectures by uh, by Robert Hill. Professor Robert Hill, uh, formerly of uh, UCLA, uh, who I think is the foremost scholar on Garvey. And 
Garvey wrote this letter uh, called The Negro's Greatest Enemy. And in this, he calls out a lot of these, the people you mentioned uh, and others. Uh, it, it's very, it's very well, you know, worth reading. Uh, I wouldn't call these uh, Negroes, you know, black people's greatest enemy, but they certainly have done done a lot of damage. But but one of the things, and you know, I just perhaps we can just close with this if I can find this part where uh, where he's talking about this because uh, according to Robert Hill, a lot of people have kind of confused this. Um, so this is what Garvey, Garvey is saying in this, uh, he's talking about his history. You know, he said, I went traveling through South and Central America and, and you know, and, and, and I set sail for Europe to find out, you know, if it was anything different there. And I found the same thing. You are black. So this is, I'm quoting Garvey directly now. I read of the conditions, I read of the conditions in America. I read up from slavery by Booger T. Washington and then my doom, if I may call it, of being a race leader dawned upon me in London after I had traveled throughout almost half of Europe. I asked, where is the black man's government? Where is his king and his kingdom? Where is his president, his country, his ambassador, his army, his navy, his men of big affairs? I could not find them. So then I decided I would help make them. Mm -hmm. Now, some Garvey scholars, including Tony Martin and Robert Hill, said they totally misread this, this uh, statement, believe that Garvey drew his inspiration from Washington to, uh, to reach this conclusion about where's the black man's government. And Hill says that, that you couldn't possibly get that from reading of from slavery. Mm -hmm. And so Robert Hill says that uh, when you read Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, a part of the book discusses the possibility of Africans being able to build Africa into an empire. That's amazing that Harriet Beecher Stowe in 1852 was talking about this. Now, where she got the information from, I don't know. You know, David Walker mentioned, you know, how Africans re-engineered the Nile in 1829. How did David Walker know that? I mean, uh, these people were obviously reading, you know, the ruins of empires and other things. But anyway, uh, you know, this is, I, I think, the, the profound, uh, a very profound statement, these series of questions that uh, wh whatever the inspiration was, whether it came from reading Uncle Tom's Cabin and or reading uh, uh, Booger T. Washington, or reading a number of the other things, because Garvey knew about the the empire, the the Nile Valley civilizations, for example. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this this uh, the the amount of knowledge that our people had because they were readers mm -hmm. is, is just incredible. <laughs> you could say much more advanced than what these people have people have now with the internet at their fingertips. They say Hubert Harrison used to read a book every day. A book every day. Hey, uh, gosh, I didn't bring my notes in here. Uh, when Gar Garvey, you know, had to quit school, he went to work, but he carried a pocket dictionary. And while he was on break at work, he would read. Uh, he would try to learn, I think, uh, 
Robert Hill said, 25 to 50 words a day. And I, I wonder if this is where Malcolm X got the idea from with his parents being Garveyites, if they knew this story mm-hmm. about Garvey going through this uh, dictionary and eventually building a vocabulary of 15,000 words. Mm-hmm. Okay. But one of the things that um, Robert Hill said, and, and he was talking about imagery, and that's where we, you know, we're talking about optics. And and he said that that Garvey more so than someone operating in the political or economic sphere. And this is what Amos Wilson says, you know, uh, in his book. Uh, when he's talking about, you know, Garvey and Garveyism, you know, uh, in in the New World Order. And he's he calls Garvey the ultimate psychotherapist. But Robert Hill says that Garvey's focus was on the mind. He 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 his real thought was on education, you know, uh, the pedagogy. Mm-hmm. And he call, he calls him a pedagogue, as a matter of fact. And he said he said this is this is. He said, would you look at the three images of Garvey? And he put them up on this slide. You see Garvey in a cap and gown. Why do you see Garvey in a cap and gown? Garvey was literally a teacher or a professor of the highest level. Okay. And so he pictured, he had numerous pictures of himself taken in a cap and gown, right? Because he wanted to emphasize the significance of self-education, right? Uh, mm-hmm. of, of, of wanting, you know, he, when, when he traveled back from uh, England, he could come to Canada. He couldn't come to the United States. He started a school, you know, in Canada. He wanted us to expand our consciousness, to have knowledge of self. The other picture that we see of Garvey is in a military uniform. And a lot of people may made uh, fun of this but what is Garvey saying here mm-hmm. where is his army his navy mm-hmm. his men of big affairs he knows that look no matter what you accomplish if you can't protect it mm-hmm. you can't you'd never be able to develop it Kwame Ture always seize whole develop whole that involves military science okay mm-hmm. in some one, some form or another and then the other uh, uh, image that he projected, you know, even though, you know, Garvey didn't, uh, I have not seen any pictures of Garvey in, in African clothes, uh, but he was always dressed to look like a business person. And that was the, he wanted to project that image, even though in, in wearing European suits, you know, he wanted to project that image, you know, that, uh, that, 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 that we have to think positively. We have to have, you know, positive self images. We have to look at ourselves as upright, of upright people mm-hmm. and you know i'm sure he would have gotten to the you know to more you know african attire but but i'm just saying you know these these three images and and so this i think is reflected in you know in this statement mm-hmm. you know uh the the images that he want to project but but robert dr robert hill said the most important image the most important image because the way Hill he placed garvey with the cap and gown in the center and then the other two images on the sides he says if you if you don't have total if you don't have knowledge yourself if we don't control our thinking if we don't control our education then all these other things the politics and economics won't matter and that's what 
I think has uh, has been proven true. Mm-hmm. Uh, history history has absolved Garvey, you know, on you know in that capacity, and the, the, the Chandler Owens and and uh, people of the world, you know, W. A. Domingo, his former colleague, became one of his most you know severe critics. Uh, have they have been proven wrong, mm-hmm. and Garvey was proven correct. So. Mm-hmm. I know we're about out of time, brother. So I, I think we, I think we dropped a lot of knowledge about Garvey on our audience today. We did, we did. Ashe, and to your point, one of Garvey's most famous quotes was that the intelligent run the world, and the ignorant carry the burden. <laughs> a BB for Hodier, brother. A BB for Hodier. Like, comment, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and uh, check us out on Spotify. And also on Apple Podcasts. Arche. Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not jobs, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. Uh, buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power. Uh, if it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.